Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. Good morning. Glad you're here. We're in week two of a series uh, entitled The Church. And in this series, what we're doing is we're walking through what the church is. And uh, many of us have many different experiences with church. Some of us recently, we just started going to church. Uh, we're looking for churches. Others of us, we've been uh, going to church forever. It seems like forever. We grew up in church. Some of us grew up in a church like this. Others grew up in churches way more traditional. Uh, and so we're asking the question, what is the church all about? And so last week, we opened up with Jesus' thesis statement on the church. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus begins to talk about the church. And as he's talking about the church, he makes a couple of things really clear. First, that it's all about him. Secondly, that it's his church. He owns it. He's in charge of it. And he's ultimately responsible for its success and its growth. That the church is powerful. In fact, the verse says that Jesus gives the church uh, the keys to heaven. The church is powerful. Then if we continue to journey through the scripture, we see in Acts that the church is supposed to operate like a family, not a club, a business, or uh, just a building, but a family. And then uh, as we hop into Ephesians, we kind of keep moving through the New Testament as we see more and more what the church is all about. We see uh, that in the church, people are to grow to full spiritual maturity and that collectively as a body, we are to reflect Jesus. We're growing into that. So that was last week, the church, Jesus's thesis statement for what this was supposed to be. And one of the other things I said last week is we don't have to imagine or reimagine church. We just have to become the church that Jesus came to plan. It was his idea, not ours. We don't get to hijack what church is. This week, we want to answer this question. Not just what is the church, but, but why does the church exist? What's its mission? What's its goal? Why does the church exist? And so as we answer that corporately and collectively for the, the big church, that church, we'll also then try to answer it for ourselves here as Redemption Church. And in the end, what we're going to do is arrive at a statement that we've kind of thought through as a team and prayed through uh, that'll hopefully be kind of a rallying cry for us something that we'll come back to or something that'll motivate us, something that'll help us answer questions like, should we do this or should we not do that? That might be like, should we buy a building? Should we stay in the theater? Should we do another service? Should we fill in the blank? And we'll go back and remind ourselves, well, why do we exist? We'll filter everything through that. And so that's where we're going to uh, go through this morning. Instead of looking at just one passage of scripture this morning, I actually have like a slew of scriptures. Uh, and so if you're taking notes, you can write all of these down. And we're going to move quickly through each of these. And the point I'm trying to make is that the scriptures themselves give us the mission of the church. We don't have to come up with it ourselves. It's in there and it's in there a lot. And so we'll just look at those. We're going to start this morning in Ephesians chapter 1 to see kind of a big picture. What is Jesus's primary mission? Uh, why did Jesus come to earth? And so we're going to start there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. It says this, in him, that's being Christ, in him we have redemption. We like that word a lot here. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. God's got a plan. 
as a plan for the fullness of time. We're going to see that phrase again, the fullness of time, to do this, to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. You can't read Ephesians 1.10 and not think about Matthew 16 that we talked about last week. The connection here that Paul is making is clear. What Paul is saying is the mission of God through, and last week we saw that God accomplishes his mission through his church. The mission of God is to unite all things back to Jesus. In the last of the Lord of the Rings, Samwise asked, will all things be made better or will all things be made new? And the answer to that question, both in Lord of the Rings and here is yes. Yes, they will. All things will now be made new. That's the end. If you flip over to Revelation, it shows you the point of all of this is that all things would be made new. Now, here's why this is important, because the mission of the church and the mission then of the Christian inside the church is not small. It's massive. You and I are a part of Jesus making everything new, fixing everything that's ever been broken. The mission of the church is that big, uniting all things or bringing all things back to Jesus. That's the mission of the church, the big picture mission. Now, in uniting all things back to Jesus, well, who does that include? So this is our first question. We're going to play like kind of some fill in the blank today. And so we have this statement, and we're going to fill in the blanks of the statement throughout this morning. And it's, we exist to help blank people experience blank and live in blank. Some of you can already fill in some of those blanks. Others of you cannot. And so we'll do that today together. The first question being, so who does this mission extend to? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, Jesus is kind of giving a mission statement to his disciples, and he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus kind of gives another mission statement, uh, and he says, hey, wait here for the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to go to Jerusalem, and then to Samaria, and then to all the ends of the earth. Acts 2.39, another somewhat kind of mission statement. Jesus had a lot of them, apparently. Uh, He says this, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then in our last passage for uh, this particular one, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we start looking through it, and and, uh, Paul writes this. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I'm going to hop down to verse 22. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. We exist to help. Yeah, some of you are good at reading. We exist to help all people, all people. Now, listen, I love business. I like advertising. I read a lot of marketing books. I understand the power and the importance of market segmentation and figuring out exactly who your target audience is and then how to cater your message to that person and to make cool Facebook ads so that they'll do something. I get it. But we're a church, not a business, which means we don't have a segmentation. We don't have the luxury of saying we just exist for these people. No, the overarching message of Scripture is the church exists for all people. Not just the rich, not just the poor, not just the uneducated or the educated, not just for a certain part of town, a certain race, a certain type. In fact, uh, when we get into those things, our churches can reflect, we've talked about this before, more clubs, more than churches. The church exists for all people. 
all people. Because the gospel is for all people. So we don't segment. We don't say, well, we're just the, the church for the churched people, or we're just the church for the unchurched people, or we're just the church for the highly educated. You know what the Bible sometimes says about the highly educated? <laughs> he says uh, the, their education is a hindrance, a hindrance to understanding the gospel. Paul says, become a fool to understand the gospel. The world thinks it's foolish. Then you, maybe you know you're on the right track. We exist for all people. Let's continue to look through this passage of 1 Corinthians. I uh, took my bookmark out, bookmark out. There it is. See how far Paul is willing to take this all people thing. Pretty far. Look what he says. I have become... Okay, let's just stop there. I have become. Who is Paul saying it's contingent upon changing? Who, who, who does the changing? He did. He didn't say, y'all become what I want you to become, and then you can be embraced and accepted. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this thing, and then if people like it, um, or if they conform to it, then they're embraced. No, he says, I have become. In other words, I will be the one who does the changing. I'll be the one who gives up preference. I'll be the one who steps out of comfort zone. I'll be the one who does the changing in order to see the winning. He says, I have become. Are you there yet this morning, friend? Are you there yet this morning to, to, to begin to filter through your own mind? I will become what? I have become all things. I mean, just simply by the language, all things. Can we get two more vague words than that? I mean, this really means that there's no limit to this. The, the only obvious limit to this passage of Scripture is anything that would be directly violating Scripture. We're going to walk through three things here that Paul says, and it seems like the only limitations he's putting in there is that it doesn't directly violate Scripture. It's the only limitation to Paul's perspective here. I have become all things. Uh, he went through a little bit of, of a list. He's like, to the, to the um, Jews, I became like a Jew. To the Greeks, I became like a Greek. To the weak, I became like a weak. To the strong, I became like a strong, right? And there's oh, so many implications in here. What are they for us? He's saying, I've become all things. Maybe it's saying, I have, I have become all things. It's, it's old person saying, uh, um, I can embrace a little bit of louder music for the sake of the gospel. Young person, I can embrace an ancient hymn for the sake of the gospel. There's really no limit here. What it's saying is I will endure all things and I will become all things. I will change me to make sure that people meet Jesus. I have become all things to who? All people. That by what? All means. This word means can only mean methods. Efforts. I have become all things to all people, the ones I like, the ones I don't like, the ones that are fit into my comfort zone and the ones who do not. I have become all things to all people so that by all means or by all methods, by all efforts, who knows what that meant for Paul? I mean, we know some of what it meant. It meant that he traveled around, that he went and planned churches, that he uh, endured uh, hard sacrifices, I mean, crazy sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. What does that mean for us? 
Paul is saying, uh, become all things, be willing to become all things for all people so that by any method that doesn't violate scripture, you might win people to Jesus. He's teaching us, church, how to operate. He's saying, have such a perspective that you'll try anything for the sake of the gospel. Like anything? I mean, if it doesn't violate scripture, why not? If it wins someone to Jesus, why not? All methods. I mean, in 2019, all methods can mean advertising. All methods can mean a big event. All methods can be me, can mean walking in the parade next uh, Saturday morning when we uh, join the Harrison Rally Day Parade in downtown Perrysburg. Like, that's about the easiest thing in the world, right? Like, that's an easy method. We have a guy in our church who's a part of an organization uh, that advances the gospel in the Middle East. Imagine what some of that all means compared to what all might mean for us. All things to all people, by all means, any method. If it reaches someone for Jesus, Paul's like, I'll celebrate that. Why? He gives us his motivation at the end. That I might save some. Even that's like a relatively weak statement. I might save some. Paul doesn't even say, he's like, I will do that to see the greatest revival of all time that I know will happen. He goes, no, I'll do all of that just for the chance that one person might come to Jesus. That I might save some. Paul says, I'm willing to do that. Then he goes on to just put an exclamation point on the end. He goes, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for all the people, all the things, by all the methods. I do it all. And why? For the sake of the gospel. Why? Because Paul is the same guy who wrote that only the gospel changes a life. He's the same guy who wrote, if anyone changes the gospel, let them be accursed. Paul knew the power of the gospel because he'd experienced it personally. And so he said, I'll do anything for the sake of the gospel. Are you there this morning? Are you there this morning? That you would do anything, anything for the sake of the gospel that there is nothing that cannot be asked of you for the sake of the gospel. No amount of investment of time, energy, money, your heart, your passion. We spent 13 weeks in the gospel of Luke trying to get all of us to the point in this series that we would realize that our good deeds and our actions don't save us. And so we've tried to strip all of that away over summer so that we can get here today to realize, so what does this um, love of Jesus produce? It produces somebody who says, I will do it all for the sake of the gospel. We looked at the entire gospel of Luke all through the summer so that we would see that there's no like iffy middle ground. Everybody walked away and they were either angry at Jesus or dejected or they gave up everything to follow him. There wasn't a middle ground. Are you here this morning? That you will do it all for the sake of the gospel. 
So we exist to help all people, all people. Experience, this one's easy. Redemption, right. Every other series has the word redemption in it. We're trying to change that, okay. All people, we exist to help all people experience redemption. And we're gonna look at a kind of a new passage for us uh, in, in describing redemption. We've um, kind of used out all of the ones that use the word redemption, so we're gonna use one that describes redemption without using the word redemption. Romans 5, 9 through 11. That's beautiful. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Justified just means made right before God. Since, therefore, we have now been made right before God, since we have been justified by his blood. There is no salvation. There is no redemption without the blood of Jesus. Any gospel that preaches a salvation apart from the blood of Christ is not a true gospel. It's a fake gospel. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, notice it doesn't say by our actions, by our morality, by our anything. There's only one thing that justifies, the blood of Jesus. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. You ever wonder where the Christians get the word saved? It's in the Bible. By be saved, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Well, there we go. We just elevated things a little bit. In other words, without the blood of Christ and without the justification by faith alone, by grace alone, without that, we are subject to the wrath of God. You know what's worse than thinking about an attorney separated from God? Thinking about an eternity where you face the wrath of God. We are subject to the wrath of God apart from the grace of Jesus through his blood. I'm trying to help you understand when I say the word redemption, what we mean. For if while we were enemies, what was your state when you came into your salvation? You were an enemy of God. That's what you were, nothing better. We were enemies. That was our state. Some of us were like, I'm a Christian because I'm an American. I'm a Christian because I grew up in the church. I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians. I'm a Christian. No, you're an enemy of God. That's it. Don't care what your parents were. Don't care what your grandparents were. Don't care what country you were born in. Don't care how moral you are. You were an enemy of God. That is it. That's the only thing that it said. Your name, enemy of God. That's it. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It's saying that there's something that happened in the, in the death of Jesus that saved us. And now it's saying there's something else that happened through the life of Jesus that saves us. It's talking about a two-part process here. We'll explain that in a second. It's our next fill in the blank. But the first one he's saying is that you and I were saved by the blood of Jesus from the wrath of God. I'll just read the last verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've now been reconciled back to God. This is the gospel. 
We were enemies of God. We were dead in our sin. Jesus, through his death, Jesus, through the blood sacrifice, Jesus justified us, and now we're made right with God. Amen. That's redemption. That's redemption. Redemption is uh, payment for our sin through the cross. It's being ransomed from dark to light, from death to life, to eternal life through Jesus. We exist as a body to help all people, all people experience redemption. We exist to help all people experience eternal life through Jesus. We exist to help all people uh, experience uh, the knowledge uh, that Jesus Christ is the risen son of God and he saves them from eternal wrath of God. That's why we exist. And now we can like begin to like work through this a little bit. Uh, and, and if we change the statement, we exist to help um, some people who we like and are close to us experience a cool Sunday morning. Pack that up and ship it to hell where it belongs. We exist to help all people experience a cool Sunday morning. Send that with the last box. We exist to help all people experience powerful moments. Send that one to hell too. We exist to help all people experience the life-changing power of the gospel. That's it. Anything short of that is not the church. It's not. We exist to help all people experience redemption. Redemption. I was going to say something I shouldn't. All right. It's called a filter. <laughs> and all the crowd said, we like you. We exist to help all people experience redemption. Listen, here's what I was going to kind of say. I like seeing people's lives get better. Of course. Of course I do. I listen to Dave Ramsey. I hear debt-free screams all day. That's people's lives getting better. There are people out there who exhaust lots of efforts in lots of different ways to improve people's lives. The church does not exist to just improve people's lives. The church exists to see people's lives changed by the gospel. So just because someone's going to church and all of a sudden they like church more or they're happy or, or they're this or that, it doesn't mean they've experienced the gospel. And the most tragic thing is if people begin to think think that their newfound religious experience or, or their religious interest has somehow means or somehow means that they've now met Jesus. It's not this liking church, becoming more religious. It's not the same thing as loving Jesus. They're different. 
We exist to help all people experience redemption and live. We'll get to Galatians 4 here. See, Paul, Paul was looking out at this church in Galatia, and he was seeing all of these people who had experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel. And he had seen how their lives had been changed. But then after their redemption, he was seeing that they were reverting back to something that they ought not to have reverted back to. And so he looks in and he says, this is how you experience redemption. But now you're trying to live in a way that is uh, not in sync with how you experienced redemption. And so he goes, I need to bring those two things together. See, um, there are people who have experienced redemption and are miserable. They're mostly in church. They, they, they've like experienced the salvation knowledge of Christ, um, but they're still miserable. And that is far from the life that is truly life. That is far from I've come that they may live life abundantly, as Jesus says. And so it can be possible to experience redemption, transformation through Jesus, salvation, but then not to experience the goodness of the Christian life, which is why we didn't end the statement there. We exist to help all people experience redemption and live in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, told you that phrase would come back, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth this son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem, that's a you know, type of redemption, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, the rest of this is all metaphor. But the point that Paul is making in the metaphor is he's saying this, all of human time, all of it, up until the moment of Jesus, all of human time was pointing at two things. He's saying it right here through Jesus. All of human time was pointing to redemption and freedom. That's what it was pointing to. And so we exist to help all people experience redemption and live in freedom. Now, freedom is an interesting word because we think what freedom means is I get to do whatever I want. Great metaphor uh, that I learned from Pastor Tim Keller on this. He said, there was a fish. The fish was in a bowl. There was only water left in the world. He was swimming in the bowl. Swimming, swimming, swimming. He got bored, so he said, I'm bored. And he said, I want free. And the owner said, no, you can't do that. And he said, yes, I want free, I want free. And the fish just kept complaining. And so what the uh, owner did is he poured the bowl over. And then the fish fell out onto the land. And now the fish had all of the land to go do whatever he wanted. And you know what he did? He died. Because freedom is only truly freedom when it's in its proper context. And when it's not in its proper context, it always leads to death. And so you can say, well, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free in Christ, so I can do whatever the heck I want. Yeah, but if whatever the heck you want is outside of the Holy Spirit, it's just going to lead to death. That's not actually freedom. Freedom is only truly freedom in its proper context, which for the Christian, we were made, if we're following the fish metaphor, for the water. That's true freedom. And so when Christians say, yeah, but I'm free to do this, right? You can't tell me what to do. You're right, I can't tell you what to do. The Holy Spirit can. And when you step out of line with him, you're, just, you're gonna get death. Verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see the progression? Slave, son, heir. And you know how that's possible? Because Jesus went from heir to son to slave to martyr. We can experience redemption because Jesus walked the opposite line. He was the heir of heaven and he became the martyr of earth so that we, the slaves of earth, could be heirs to heaven. Imagine you traveled over to Saudi Arabia. Okay, should already be kind of scary. You travel over there and you do something horrible and horrendous that just um, offends the king of Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia so badly. No one knows about it, by the way. The media doesn't pick up your story. You ain't on the front page of every paper. Instead, what happens? You've offended the king so badly that the king of Saudi Arabia now has just um, placed you in a dungeon, in the desert, in prison, and no one knows you're there, except for the people who put you there. And your life is now confined to a small box for the rest of your life. And you're in this prison. See, Paul was creating a metaphor. I'm trying to create a metaphor. You're in this prison. There is no trial. There is no media. There's no extradition. There's no help coming. And you're in this miserable state. And days turn into weeks, and weeks turns into months, and months turns into years. And you're in this state, and then all of a sudden, there is a knock at your prison door, which you think is your execution. And you open it up, and staring at you is one of the princes of Saudi Arabia. And he walks in there, and he sits down, and he tells you to walk out. And you walk out, and you're just like, what is going on right now? And in your head, you might think, okay, so I'm out of this, but I'm still in Saudi Arabia in the middle of a desert in a prison. So I'm glad that I'm not in there. But still, what am I supposed to do here? See, the people who um, just stand outside of the prison gate or the prison, the little door that they just walked out, but they still stay stranded in the middle of the desert are like Christians who have experienced redemption, but don't live in their freedom. Instead, imagine then you continue walking down this dark alley or uh, dungeon that has been your home in this little prison. And this is actually the most freedom that you've had in years because you can actually walk and there. You could just sit. But now you're beginning to walk a little bit. And as you walk, you're like, I didn't know these legs worked like this because I haven't used them in a really long time. And then you walk out there and you get out to the prison and you see the sun for the very first time. And you are still out in the middle of the desert. But that was a Saudi prince. So what's waiting for you? either a Rolls Royce or a Gulfstream. It's Saudi Arabia, people. And you look at the, 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 the jet and you're like, well, what's that for? And the guard looks at you and says, it's yours. What am I doing? Oh, you have to go see the king. And so you get into the Gulfstream and you fly to the palace and you walk into the palace and while you're in the Gulfstream, because of course it's a Gulfstream and it has a very nice shower. You take a shower for the first time because you smelled horrible. And then you get on a nice, I don't even know how much outfits cost over there, hundred grand, 200 grand, who knows, right? And you put that on and you walk into the palace and you see a chair right next to the king, the one who put you into prison because you so deeply offended him. And you walk in and you're still a little scared and you see the chair right by the king and you think, I'm not gonna sit there because he remembers me. 
And you walk in and you sit down and you're terrified. And the king looks at you and he calls you the name of the prince who's in prison. That is what Paul was trying to get across in Galatians 4. You're not just redeemed or saved by Jesus. You're set free then because of your redemption. You are set free and you are now an heir to the throne of heaven. The king sees you as if you were the prince. This is the full gospel. You say free. Well, what does this freedom mean? Well, it means you're free from your past because there is no condemnation in Christ. It means you're free from failure because you have not been given a spirit of fear. And perfect love drives out all fear. It means you're um, free from the mistakes and the failures of your past because you're no longer defined by your greatest failure. You're defined by Jesus' finest moment. So you're free from all of those things. And you're not just free from something. You are now free to something. Why? You're free to forgive. Why? Because you've been forgiven so much. You're free to live ridiculously generously. Why? Because you have been made an heir to heaven. Because the riches you have in Christ are so much better than the riches of this world. You're free to worship wholeheartedly. You're free to live joyously. Because had you actually, the picture here, the Saudi Arabia story, is a picture of our spiritual transformation. If you had actually been living in that prison, sitting in there, thinking all you're going to do is die. And the moment the prince came in and took your spots, you would have gone, woo! Then you would have kept walking. And when you would have seen the jet, you would have been like, what? And then when you would have flown to the palace and the king was like, sit here, you'd have been like those people in those stupid reality TV shows when they see their new bedroom and they're like, oh my gosh. There is nothing, there is, there is nothing you probably wouldn't say or do in those moments to not express your joy. Some of you, you would have even danced and I've seen you try and clap. Your status in a moment went from in prison to prince of Saudi Arabia. Oh, if that doesn't produce reckless joy, what will? A raise? Winning a game? We exist to help all people experience redemption and live in that freedom. And I, for one, that's something I'm willing to give my life to. We don't just exist to make sure this happens. We don't invite people to come and hear the band. No, we exist to help all people experience redemption. 
and live in freedom. And I hope you can get excited about that too. Excited enough to pledge your life to it. Now, in order to do that, you first have to experience redemption. So have you? Have you seen your sins paid for at the cross of Jesus, his blood covering over them? If not, invite him in today. Let the blood of Jesus cover your sin. If you've done that right here, now you're saved in that first sense. Well, let me talk to everybody. Are you living in freedom? Are you living as an heir to the throne? Do you know the joy? I'm, I'm glad when people experience redemption, of course. But honestly, for me, it's just as tragic for me to see people who've experienced redemption and don't live in freedom. And so I would encourage you to let Jesus speak to you about that freedom this morning. Because the mission I'm talking about, the level of commitment I'm talking about, the sacrifice that I'm talking about, only free people can get to that level. Only free people can run that fast. See, the rest of us, if we're weighted down by religion, if we're weighted down by our past, if we're weighted down because we still love this world, if we're weighted down because we still enjoy sin more than Jesus, we can't run to accomplish the mission. So leave all that stuff here today. We got some running to do. I know some of you are like, that's the worst metaphor you could ever give me. I hate running. We have some power walking to do. Some bicycling. I'll buy you a Vespa. We're just going. We're going to take communion. Go ahead and pull it out. Ben, y'all can come up. We take communion this morning as a reminder of the power of redemption, Jesus' blood for us. But we also take communion this morning as a reminder that we have been called to freedom. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.